We're starting this episode with a funeral. On behalf of the Sproul family, welcome to this memorial service for Dr. Robert Charles Sproul, known simply as RC to millions of Christians around the world. The funeral took place on December 20th, 2017 at St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida. Christians everywhere honored the life and legacy of Dr. R.C. Sproul, the founder of Ligonaire Ministries and the author of many classic books, including The Holiness of God and Chosen by God. He was a giant of a man, a brilliant mind, quick wit, a larger-than-life personality, and a massive influence on the Reform resurgence. At the memorial service, John MacArthur eulogized his friend. A great treasure in my life. I never expected to have the honor of uh, knowing him personally. I was a mildly dispensational Baptist. What hope was there for me? And then, almost out of nowhere, R.C. stepped into my life, first of all, as a friend. This memorial service was the end of an era for John MacArthur, the final chapter of a relationship that shaped his ministry in profound ways. We're going to explore that relationship today. It has so much to teach us about endurance. And endurance, as you know, is our theme for season three. John MacArthur's been pastoring since Richard Nixon was president. And I want to say this to the television audience. He's been at the same church 20 times longer than the average American pastor's tenure. Members of our church who've been here since the early 70s have children at the church, grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren. That's four generations with the same shepherd. That kind of longevity is almost as rare as the crown jewels. And it doesn't happen unless John prioritizes friendship. So, if we want to have that same kind of endurance, to press on, persevere both in ministry and the Christian life, we must understand just how vital friendship is. It has not only transformed John's ministry, it's also changed the course of church history. And it's one of the most significant themes of the Bible. If that sounds like overstatement, you need to tune in you'll see that God not only uses like-minded brothers to strengthen our perseverance, he also points to our friendship with him as our ultimate source of strength, joy, and purpose. We'll explore that in this episode, one that points to the centrality of friendship to our lives and ministry. My name is Austin T. Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. This is season three of the podcast, From the Center, The Enduring, The Timeless and Fruitful Ministry of John MacArthur. Jesus As we begin this episode, I have a question for you, dear listener. How many friends do you have? And friends are friends forever. If the Lord's alone, 
I'm talking about friends of friends forever kind of friends. The kind of friend that will never say never. The friend, in the words of Proverbs 18.24, who sticks closer than a brother. Are there 10 of them in your life? Five? Or just one close friend? A lot of people may claim to have friends. Some people are waking up to realizing they don't, but we feel a bit stuck with where we are. This is Drew Hunter, teaching pastor at Zionsville Fellowship in Zionsville, Indiana. He also wrote a book called Made for Friendship, the relationship that halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. I read it last year and found it so clarifying on this topic. In the book, he talks about a crisis of loneliness in our world and how friendship isn't what it used to be. Various studies came out saying that over the course of 20 years, people would go from, you know, having like three friends to one friend or answering questions like, do you feel like your relationships are meaningful? And like half the people would say no. Um, or 40% would say, I feel like no one really knows me well at all. A recent study from the Survey Center on American Life found that Americans report having fewer close friendships than they once did, talking to their friends less often and relying less on their friends for personal support. In fact, nearly half of all Americans reported having fewer than three close friends. A number of practices have led to people feeling just disconnected. So busyness is one of them, right? Our time, we just, we're, our schedules are filled. Transience, so we're moving around a lot. I moved around a lot earlier in my life. And the more you move, the harder it is to maintain those relationships, the less motivated you are to plug in deeply with the people in your current location, because you wonder if you'll just move away again. Cultural practices and values have led to this as well. So our culture really is individualistic and we value individual success over community connection and that's going to affect things in ways that we may not even think about right away people are very uh less willing to move for friendship or to consider maybe i should stay because i have a rich church life here and maybe that's actually more valuable than a pay increase or advancing my career it's just our culture we've embraced this value of that success so we're all kind of waking up especially post pandemic to think Oh my goodness, I feel alone. This lack of friendship in our society is a big deal. Friendship is hardwired into God's creation. We are designed for friendship. So when we don't prioritize friends, we miss one of life's greatest blessings. Here's Drew again, tracing the priority of friendship throughout scripture. You look at creation and start to think, okay, why? how is friendship built into the fabric of the world? And you see in Genesis 1, we're made in God's image. And we're made in the image of not just a solitary God, but the triune God of love. So God has eternally existed as a fellowship of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. So no wonder he makes people who need community. So we're inescapably communal because we're made in the image of a communal God. Genesis 2, uh, it says, it is not good that the man should be alone. That's startling. And that's before Genesis 3 when sin enters the world. So Adam, just by himself, without any other human around, God says it's not good that he's alone. God's with him, creation's perfect, but it's not yet complete without human community. And so uh, that shows us the creational need for it and that we're inescapably communal. And then obviously the fall completely messes it up, which is why friendship is so hard and sin by its nature turns us inward rather than outward toward God and others. So that's gonna lead, lead to all sorts of issues. But then Jesus comes and he's called the friend of sinners by those who hate him, but it's a great 
title for him because he's eating with sinners. And then he says in John 15, this is what really pointed me to the centrality of friendship within um, a cosmic scope. The night before he dies, he gathers his disciples together. He's giving, he's unburdening himself or he's, he's revealing his heart to them. And he wants them to understand what's about to happen to them, what's about to happen to him. And then therefore them in light of it, he wants them to understand the cross. And he says, the cross essentially is an act of friendship. He says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15, verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, because all things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Friendship is at the heart of the gospel. God designed us for it, and he sent his son to restore friendship between God and man. Yet, ironically, pastors, the ones who proclaim the necessity of human relationships and the centrality of friendship between God and man, often are the ones who lack meaningful friendships. Every Christian needs, at minimum, one other Christian who knows them and knows what they're facing and knows their struggles and knows their sins and is partnering with them to pray for them and fight those sins together. And so church cultures can be unsafe for that because they either uh, have too high an expectation of a perfection of a pastor or they'll gossip and they won't keep confidences. And pastors have been burned because they've either had trust broken or they fear that because they've hurt others. And so that can make it hard. Um, I think also pastors themselves, sometimes we think we're too special and exceptional as if we're this different kind of Christian. And so it's really interesting how often it can happen where pastors can teach the one another's while not actually doing them um, in, in real everyday life and teach about the importance of community, but not actually be in rich community. Another issue obviously is ministry can um, be overburdening. Just like any other career, pastors can make their own ministry role into a bit too much and take too much of their emotions and energy and they don't leave margin in life, they don't leave space for other aspects of life and then they burn out. Um, or they're so stressed out and not caring for the other aspects of life and, and just sleep and eating and exercising and friendship that then they're in a vulnerable place and they can fall into moral failure. And then they don't have a friend to be accountable to and share that with. And so they blow up their ministry and they're not accountable. So those are those are a few of the of the challenges that that pastors um, can face that that lead to them not pursuing friends. It can be really hard. Thankfully. There are good examples throughout church history of pastors who have prioritized friendship, who may not have continued in ministry without their friends. One famous example is the poet and hymn writer William Cooper and his friend John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Drew Hunter talks about these men in his book. John Newton and William Cooper is a beautiful friendship. Um, so John Newton was a pastor at the time and William Cooper was a, a, a member and a friend in the area and who struggled deeply with depression. And John Newton befriended him. He'd take him with him to visit people. He'd write back and forth. They were separated for a number of years when John Newton had to move away and they still stayed close um, and wrote and, and would still be able to spend time together. And what, what's so interesting about the way that John Newton and William Cooper talk is it was not clearly not defined as pastor parishioner. 
right? The identity of John Newton was not so wrapped up in being a pastor and a shepherd to this man. It was being a friend. So I think personally, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And I think that's a lesson for a lot of men today. I think one of the problems pastors have in not pursuing friendship is because, because we take on this identity so strongly as a pastor that we don't let other identities like just being a human being. And so John Newton and William Cooper, they were just friends who loved each other. From the beginning of his ministry, MacArthur saw value in the kind of friendship Drew Hunter just described. I recently asked John what role friendship played when he started as pastor of Grace Community Church. My dad, from another era, said to me when I was very young and just starting out in ministry, you don't really want to make friends in, in your church ministry because people will see it as partiality and uh, you'll be criticized for it or you'll get too involved with a few people and, and not be accessible to everyone. So he literally told me that he consciously avoided making friends in in his ministry. Guys outside the ministry, other pastors or you know, other Christians that you might meet somewhere, not the same issue. While I love my dad, I never ever accepted that as valid because I don't know any other way to live my life. If I don't have friends, I can't I can't have to force myself to push people away. Why would I do that? Because you need friends. You desperately need friends in ministry. Uh, as much or maybe more than any other place. Because the weight is so immense, you need all the honesty that you can possibly muster from the people around you. The kind of people who aren't impressed with you, who don't see you as somebody different, somebody higher, higher up the spiritual ladder. So I, I did the opposite. I, I thought from the very beginning, I want to make friends with everybody. And that is exactly what MacArthur did. He made friends with people in his church. Here he is talking about a couple he's known since 1969. But nothing is as encouraging as lasting friendship. I was thinking about it the other day. Burton and Dolores Michelson, two people in our church who were here before I came, they were part of the committee that brought me. They're both um, in their late 80s now and not well and um, struggling physically. And um, this is the full 54 years that, that I've been here. They've been alongside me in a loving friendship as lay people. And Dolores wrote this beautiful two-page letter thanking me for all that these years have meant. And just rehearsing the fact that when they invited me to come, they had no idea what the future was going to be and how stabilizing and thrilling the whole saga of this church has been. And they've prayed for me consistently and encouraged me consistently for 54 years. I mean, that is a benediction of all benedictions, humanly speaking. Uh, to be loved for half a century 
is not easy, especially when you're the preacher, because you're confronting. And then on top of that, you're the leader, and you're making decisions. And over half a century, a lot can go wrong. You can say things you shouldn't have said. You can lead in directions you shouldn't have led. And um, lasting friendships, to me, are the, the very best, clearest evidence of the grace of God in your life. It's not always easy for pastors to cultivate friendship within their congregation, but it's critical for a long-lasting ministry. MacArthur is evidence of that. His decades of pastoral ministry were made possible in part by the love and friendship he has with members of Grace Church. In this, he's following the model of the Apostle Paul, someone who didn't shy away from close relationships with the people he shepherded. As Paul faces the last days of his life, as he closes out his last epistle, last chapter, writes his last paragraph, people are on his mind, people who made up his life, people who shared his ministry, people who were crucial and vital and critical and essential to everything that he did. And what we have in these verses from 9 through 22 is Paul's, to put it in modern terms, network of people. And we are reminded in this particular passage that none of us who would minister for Christ can do so alone. We are not islands. The better able we are to be dependent, the better able we are to delegate, the better able we are to understand how critical it is for us to work with and alongside people, the more effective we'll be in the Lord's service. And so as he writes from prison, what is his final words? He thinks of his people. He thinks of the network, the team that made up so much of his life. And we learn so much from this. If there's been any one joy in my ministry, this has been my joy. To have had a band of men whose hearts God has touched. Who are my own team of friends, co-laborers. Each playing a vital part in life and ministry. Okay. It's clear that friendship is crucial, essential even for every believer. So we better make sure we know how to do it well, how to be a good friend. Thankfully, John MacArthur brought up that exact topic during a recent conversation in the MacArthur Center. I'm going to play you a part of our conversation. It was classic MacArthur, full of wisdom from more than five decades of relationships and ministry. So I've always tried to understand a friendship as a way in which I can help someone else. I want to do what I can do to bless you. I want to do what I can do to extend your ministry, to advance your ministry, to make you a more effective communicator of Scripture, to enrich your life in personal fellowship. Um, I think what is deadly to a friendship is when you look at friends as those from whom you can draw something for yourself then the friendship becomes manipulative on the one hand, and on the other hand, it can end up being a very disappointing relationship. But if you look at your friendships as 
I believe I can help. I can make a difference. I can enrich this person. I can increase their usefulness to the Lord. I can be an encourager to them. Then, then it falls to you to be everything you can be, and you can only go as far as they let you go. And and you know that's that's the best you can do. But I think if you if you really understand friendship. Friendship is about you being a friend rather than somebody else being your friend because of what they provide for you. So that that's biblical love. That's selflessness. That, right. that lines up with everything the Proverbs say about friends. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way the wicked leads him astray. You know, it's that looking out for your neighbor. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The companions of fools suffer harm. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of, you know, friend loves at all times, right? Proverbs 17, 17. So I think where we're going with this, that's really helpful. What you're saying is this kind of friendship has to start with your own disposition to care for, love, serve, sacrifice for the sake of your friend, not personal gain. Right, and I think, just taking, uh, this is a hypothetical illustration. You you have a friend, and maybe he's a friend who you're you're with in private, and and publicly you're you're ministering together. And your friend does something, says something that's, um, you know, troublesome publicly. Maybe he took a viewpoint that was weird or... Um, you know, maybe he um, he said something critical or whatever. At that point is the test of the friendship. And so, what what do you say? Okay, I can't I can't be this guy's friend anymore. No, what what I have to think about is this: How can I be a better friend uh, now, even in the face of a disappointment? How can I? People have said to me, "Well, if somebody." Uh, disappointed you in ministry would you ever invite them back and the answer is if if i believed in my heart that i could help them and that would encourage them and and that would lift them up absolutely without a hesitation in fact um you know I'm, i'm looking at that opportunity right now as i as i talk about it there, there are people who, when you step out of line with what their expectation is, you, you're anathema. That wouldn't be the attitude of a friend. A friend would say, no, nobody's perfect. Let's, let's express love and ask the question, would it be an encouragement to have him? Would it be an encouragement to him? Would it lift him up? Would it um, um, you know, be a, a gift of grace to his heart? Uh, now we're not obviously not talking about somebody who ran off for somebody's wife or something right. like that, but yeah, I, I think we have to look at friendships with the viewpoint that the friendship exists for you to be a help and an encouragement, and so when you have the opportunity to be that, um, then step in and be that because there are plenty of people in the world who, once you make the mistake that shows up on the internet, you're 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 anathema. And I, I think that's that's not friendship. Yeah, and, and I think what you're talking about is is you're putting aside that personal offense. Like you, you seem like the right. What you're describing is this isn't about me and harm you've done to me or foolishness directed towards me. 
you're willing to put that aside because you still feel like you can help this person and invest in Right. So, so here's the classic illustration of that. Peter, on three separate occasions, denies Christ. And um, th- this, is, this is a massive, massive breach of friendship on his part. And you turn a few pages in the Gospel of John, and what is our Lord doing? He's picking up the pieces of Peter, and he's saying to him, do you love me? Because that's really all I want. And he restores him, not to some minor level, but to the epic moment of Pentecost where he is the the voice of God. So I I think you, you have to see Christ you know, always doing that. He had to be doing that all the time with the disciples. That's just the most dramatic illustration of it. And I think you have to treat friendships that way. You, you, um, that's what a friend is for. A friend loves at all times. A brother, right. one for a person. And, and when somebody suffers difficulty, you, you don't end the friendship. That's when the friendship takes on value. As our conversation continued, it turned in a direction that may surprise you, unless you're a mom or a dad. As John talked about choosing the right friends, he reflected on parenting and how he helped guide and direct his own children as they chose their friends, because he knew those friendships would shape them more than almost any other influence. We tried to teach our children that you need to be a friend who has a positive influence on someone else. I mean, that's what friendship is, just what I was talking about. Even when you're a kid, that's your friend because he needs something that you can provide. He needs encouragement. He needs companionship. He he, he needs whatever he needs, and you can provide something to enrich his life. At any point when when kids are young, that that friend is having the influence— on you rather than you on him, then that friendship is toxic. And so as our kids were growing up, we, we, we wanted them to befriend the kids that needed, needed a committed Christian kid to have an influence on their life. But if at any point we saw that the influence was reversed and it was going the other way, we were we were very, very direct and very intentional, even to the point where I said on a number of occasions, you cannot be with that person because that's affecting you negatively. And uh, that kind of exposure, we, we, we can't allow. That's part of the protection you have to provide for your children. You know, when you think about it, parents today are worried and rightly so about their kids being influenced by the media by the internet by you know the, the cell phone by whatever's out there and you almost can't stop it it's just coming at them you know in a, in a flood but they don't understand that making wrong friends maybe is even more impactful um, because it predates the internet it predates the internet but it's, um, it's a subtle attack. So you, you have to deal with not exposing your kids to the media influences, but, but you also have to protect your kids from evil influences that come from the, the, the people you, 
you let them spend time with. Bad company corrupts good morals. The friends you choose will shape your life. John MacArthur knows that. That's why he was so intentional about who his children spent time with. He knew that any instruction and influence they received at home could be canceled out by a bad friend. Friendships can have the same shaping effect on your ministry. If you're a pastor, the men you spend time with are going to make you a better preacher and shepherd, or they could lead you out of the ministry. So you need to make sure you choose your pastoral friends wisely. You need to spend time with those who uniquely understand the challenges and joys of the ministry, who can be sources of strength, or can point you to Scripture in Christ. And over the course of MacArthur's ministry, one man, a Presbyterian from the other side of the country, did all of that for John, and in the process, strengthened John's ministry through this unique friendship. The first time I heard R.C. Sproul teach was several decades ago, and I can't recall the exact date, but I do remember his teaching like it was yesterday. Someone had loaned me his signature series, The Holiness of God, on videotape, and I took it home to watch. Within minutes after I pressed play, I was riveted. And, of course, I still remember some of the points that he made. He was speaking to a room full of young people, and he stood on a slightly elevated platform, a lectern and a large chalkboard were the only furnishings on the platform. R.C. didn't lean on the lectern. He wasn't tied to any notes. He moved freely around on the platform as he spoke, walking frequently from side to side. His delivery was completely from memory, perfectly paced and passionate. He spoke with a rich vocabulary, never pausing to grasp for words and never wasting a single syllable. If you haven't experienced what J-Mac just described, the phenom that is the teaching of R.C. Sproul, here's a little taste for you. Ladies and gentlemen, there is only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There is only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels, where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy, or even that He's holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, Holy. First time he came to Grace Church to preach, he showed up a little early before the service and he found me, I remember in the patio, and he said to me, do you have a Bible I could borrow? And I said, what? He said, do you have a Bible I could borrow? And I said, yeah, I think we have a we have a Bible you can borrow. And he hadn't brought a Bible or he'd forgotten it. And um, he was going to give a message on holiness. And so with a borrowed Bible and absolutely no notes, he stood up in our worship center and, you know, just captivated the crowd. There were some people who thought he had a photographic memory. I don't know if that's the case, but if not, it was pretty close to that. Not long after Sproul and MacArthur's friendship formed, R.C. invited John to Florida. He had a special assignment for his Baptist friend, 
with no roots in the Reformed world, where R.C. was an influential figure. Here's John at Sproul's memorial service describing that unforgettable first visit to the Ligonier National Conference. It just seemed to me out of nowhere that I was given an invitation to come and speak at a Ligonier Conference. And I, I had some history with some people very close to R.C., namely John Gerstner. John had actually come to Grace Church and done a series. And in his wonderfully inimitable way, he said about me, since you're a dispensationalist, you're going to end up a heretic. He later told R.C. that didn't happen because I don't think logically. <laughs> Nonetheless, for reasons I don't know, Vesta, R.C. opened his heart to me and invited me to Ligonier to speak. And then he assigned me to speak on the doctrine of election, which I actually thought at the time he had invented. And he was there with his Diet Coke on the front row and his feet crossed and I, I knew this was a test. And it was the most public test a human being could ever have to put his theology on display before the great theologian himself. He opened up my life to the riches of Reformed theology. I had discovered it on my own um, it's as if I, I saw the glory tucked away in a rock and somehow through his ministry and the connections that he made with other people and writers, even going back in history, the full glory of the doctrines of grace exploded on my conscience. And they not only had common convictions, they had a genuine friendship. As a preacher, R.C., you felt like you were having a conversation with him. Everything always felt conversational with R.C. He was engaging, he was personable, and that wasn't just in the pulpit. He, he was really that way. I would say, if you narrowed me down to maybe the three greatest conversationalists I've met in my life, R.C. would be one of them. Because you never had the same conversation twice with him. Never. So well read, so thoughtful. Because of John and R.C.'s common convictions and deep affection for each other, they became an extraordinary team in battle. During every theological controversy John MacArthur faced, R.C. Sproul was there. R.C. Sproul didn't only support John MacArthur during all those controversies. He didn't just say, I agree with John MacArthur. He actually joined John in the fight. He made MacArthur's battles his own. That's a mark of true friendship. And when there were disagreements, as there inevitably were between these men with different theological backgrounds, their friendship not only survived, it became stronger. 
He even had the temerity to ask me to debate him on baptism. This was terrifying to me. I never studied for anything that hard in my entire life. If anything came out of that, it proved that if I get desperate enough, I can work hard. That's the debate we talked about in the first episode of the season on Theological Triage. If you haven't listened to it yet, you really need to. You can download it on the Ligonier website. But for now, let's note how John and R.C. did not let their disagreements get in the way of their bond in Christ. That's another central mark of friendship. The ability to look past disagreements and focus on all that's in common. John knows that his ministry was strengthened because of his friendship with R.C. That's what friends do. They get in the foxhole with us and fight our fights. They carry our burdens, they lighten our loads, and sweeten our journeys. John expressed that love for his friend in a tribute he wrote back in 2017. The passion that motivated R.C. was his love of the gospel and his zeal for making sure that the gospel message was proclaimed without compromise or confusion. And I'm a committed, uh, baptistic premillennialist. He was a steadfast Presbyterian with somewhat fluid eschatological opinions, you could say. But we agreed on far more than we ever disagreed on, especially when it came to the core issues of soteriology and the five Reformation solas. And over the years, we stood shoulder to shoulder in full agreement through several major theological battles. And in fact, he nicknamed me Boris after Boris Yeltsin at one time in Russian history, Boris stood on top of a tank and stopped the advance of some soldiers. And so from then on, I was nicknamed Boris. And I would say no nationally known Christian leader has been openly a better friend to me than R.C. Sproul. Uh, He stood by my side for decades in every major theological controversy I was engaged in, even when I didn't intend to be controversial, but was controversial, it seemed that he wanted to jump on that bandwagon. So more than I could ever express, I, I appreciate that friendship, his willingness to stand with me without flinching. Less than a month before he died, R.C. Sproul preached his final sermon. It was titled, a great salvation from Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 4. You know if you're neglecting your salvation. You know that. I don't have to tell it to you. I just have to tell you what the consequences are. If you continue in that neglect. So I pray with all my heart that God will awaken each one of us today to the sweetness, the loveliness, the glory of the gospel declared by Christ. More on friendship in a moment. If this podcast has inspired you, if you're considering pastoral ministry, there's something you need to do. Go to tms.edu and request information about our residential Master of Divinity program at the Master Seminary. No other seminary program will better prepare you for an enduring ministry. 
Every aspect of the curriculum points to the pulpit, preparing you to handle the Word of God accurately and proclaim it faithfully. And since the seminary is located on the campus of Grace Community Church, every student has the opportunity to serve God's people while in seminary as they prepare for a lifetime of servant leadership. So, if you want a ministry that lasts, make sure you're fully equipped. Go to tms.edu today. In the middle of the 1980s, Steve Lawson was a young pastor, leading a small Bible church in Little Rock, the capital city of Arkansas, and he needed help. He knew he was in over his head. He had all kinds of questions about leading a congregation, the nature of biblical eldership, and how to endure in ministry. His quest for assistance took him all the way out to Los Angeles to a small gathering of pastors called the Shepherd's Conference. It was so small that we met in the chapel and it really could have been almost like the first half of the chapel. Uh, There were about 200 men there, max. At the time, Lawson certainly could not have predicted what he was going to hear and how John's teaching would change his life. And I was astounded. In fact, I remember thinking, I feel like I'm in Geneva, listening to John Calvin, because his manners of expression, his vocabulary, the way he was saying what he was saying was unlike anything I'd ever heard. And I had sat under some great preachers in, in, in my lifetime and had already graduated from seminary with some pretty remarkable faculty members. But what John had to say was unlike anything I'd ever heard, the way that it was being stated. I'll never forget, he preached Isaiah 6, the holiness of God. And he preached 2 Corinthians 2. And I actually thought, well, the next morning I'm going to wake up and go to breakfast. And I was sitting there, got there early, sitting there writing my sermon for that next Sunday. And into the restaurant comes walking John MacArthur with Patricia. And I look up and he walks right across the room and walks right up to me, almost like he knew me. And I put out my hand and introduced myself, and I thought, why is he walking over to me? And he noticed my bottle of ink, and I was writing with a fountain pen. And he immediately just started up a conversation with me. And after a while, he said, why don't you just come sit with us and eat breakfast with us? So... I followed him to his booth and sat there and ate breakfast, and I was there probably at least two hours. And I I couldn't believe how easy it was to talk to John. In fact, he wanted to be called John. He, He wasn't doctor this or pastor this or whatever. He was just John. Not long after that breakfast meeting, Steve published his first book with the same publisher as MacArthur. That led to more interactions between the two men. Gradually, a friendship formed. Eventually, John invited Steve to speak at Grace Church. And somehow, I was invited to speak 
and it went really well. They invited me back the next year, and they said, well, would you like to play golf with John MacArthur? I said, well, let me pray about it, yes. And I remember going out to the golf course and eating lunch with John. I just couldn't believe what a gracious person John was because he preaches strong and he preaches like a like a like a pit bull but he's just a teddy bear out of the pulpit and so from there you know he said would would you like to preach for me and I couldn't believe that he would like allow me to step into his pulpit and and to preach but he did John MacArthur made Steve Lawson his friend He brought him into his life, shared his pulpit with him, invited him to speak at Shepherd's Conference. And in the story of John's friendship with Steve, there's something we can learn about what makes someone a friend. John was a good friend to Lawson because he pointed him to Christ. He didn't focus on what he could get from Steve, but instead focused on what he could give him. At the end of my conversation with Drew Hunter, Drew focused on those two elements when I asked him what advice he had for someone wanting to grow as a friend. Enjoy friendship with Jesus. He is the truest friend. He wants to be thought of as a friend. He wants us to think of ourselves as his friends, those who are united to him in Christ, as John 15. And therefore, a part of the nature of friendship is you become like your friends. You become like those you love. And so the more we relate to Jesus in terms of friendship, the more we'll become like him. And then the second piece of advice would be don't focus so much on finding friends, but focus on being a good friend. Become the best friend you can be to people. Um, And then you'll multiply friendship. You'll make other people better friends. You'll be content and not frustrated by everyone else. So be befriended by Jesus. Be a friend rather than seeking friends. You cannot be a good friend unless you learn the art of encouragement. It creates friendships and sustains them. That's certainly true of Steve Lawson and John MacArthur's relationship. In fact, Steve says John's encouragement and support saved his ministry during its greatest crisis. Actually, 20 years ago last week that I was run out of a church, a very large Southern Baptist church. It was a very painful, embarrassing situation, but... It was all because I preached the truth of the Word of God. And I called John before I stepped down. And he gave me wise counsel on what I should do. I mean, no Southern Baptist pastor, seminary president, any anybody's going to call me and even want to be associated with me. And there were plenty of people who could have called me, but they... They didn't want anything to do with me. John was there when I needed a friend. And he was more than just encouraging words. I mean, he was putting everything, in some sense, on the line to be associated with me, to be connected with me, and even open up his home to me. So I I will always always remember John for that when everyone else is running out of the building John came running into the building um, to be with me 
so since then John has been a friend who has been like Proverbs a friend who sticks closer than a brother and I remember when I left my last church that one was by my own choice but John I remember his first words were I've got your back I've got your back so he's been a true friend not just a glad hander but a a true friend and has provided so much good in my life at so many levels what Steve just described is a friendship all pastors need when trials come and they always do pastors need someone who as Bishop Ryle says cut our sorrows in half and double the joy in life and ministry but basically it comes down to two things that sorts out the the individuals you end up with one is they pursue you I have said through the years that my closest friends are the people who choose to be my closest friends they don't want a marginal relationship they want a lasting one for whatever reason and it's beyond just theology although it encompasses that it's hard it's 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 virtually impossible to have a full-blown intimate ministerial friendship with somebody who doesn't believe what you believe that's just that's too awkward but within the category of sound doctrine I, I just have taken the, the, the people that the Lord has brought into my life, deposited in my life, uh, and we have things in common. That's what drives that friendship on a broader level than just theology. So take a guy like Steve Lawson. We have a common background in athletics, played football in high school, college. He's a warrior. Uh, He's an expositor. And all that could be said of a lot of people. But Steve sought that relationship at a level that exceeded others. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, I think of the guys that have been most long-term friends as guys who... I could help and encourage. Um, Bringing them to Shepherd's Conference, bringing them to preach at Grace Church, uh, helping them get books published, helping them write books, reading their manuscripts. Um, Guys who believed in me, that's category one. Guys I believed in, that's category two. And that's the mix of lasting friendships. Let's return to the question I asked at the beginning of this episode. How many friends do you have? Or, phrase it like MacArthur just did, how many people do you believe in? And how many people believe in you? If no one comes to mind and you're a pastor, your ministry isn't built for the long haul. Pastoral ministry, just like life itself, 
is made for friendship. MacArthur knows that he couldn't have made it this long without friends in his corner, and he knows you won't make it without friends in yours. That's why it's worth it to put forth the effort that friendship requires, because it takes time and investment and attention. It requires effort to cultivate these kind of friends. But in the end, it's worth it because they'll help you make it to the end. But next to the study of the Word of God, the joy of my life has to do with relationships. It starts with Patricia and my kids and my grandkids, and now I'm getting acquainted with great grandkids. But my joy in ministry is being with those of like precious faith. Um, This is what makes life rich. I get up every day and I, I am thrilled if I know that I get to spend that day with various people who are part of my life in ministry because that fellowship is that precious to me. And I, I wouldn't ever want, maybe that's why the Lord never let me be a pastor of a small church out in the country. I'd go crazy. I need the, the richness of that fellowship. I need uh, to express love and have love expressed. I, I, I need to serve. I, relationships are everything. And I, I think a uh, pastor loses a ton of joy in ministry and will show up in his ministry if he doesn't have those kinds of friendships. So if, if you if you don't have them around you because your organization is big or your church is big, you've got to find them and you've got to cultivate them because they are the things that make your life rich and joyful, productive, helpful. They, uh, they compel your prayer life. They compel your wisest counsel. They, they, they carry your burdens for you and with you. They are the richest thing about ministry. Our next episode will talk about why a pastor who is in his 80s is surrounded by young people and why he believes that the church's priority needs to be ministering to the next generation. MacArthur is for the youth. The Enduring is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. Special thanks to Drew Hunter, Steve Lawson, and Cody Signore. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you like and subscribe. That helps others find us. And for more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, visit tms.edu. ATD, out.